Thanks be to God. You guys can have a seat. As we look at Ephesians 1, 3-14, I want to start off by reading a quote from someone from 1830, a French philosopher by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville was, uh, grew up in a world of hierarchy and kings and queens of France and had a um, half you know, hierarchy childhood with a latter democracy evolution in America, and he was obsessed with this new democracy forming in America, so he wanted to, he believed it was the way of the future, so he wanted to study it and observe it. So he traveled to America to observe the American life, and what was this new democracy thing? Um, and uh, it's public domain, it's called uh, Democracy in America, really clever title. Um, but this is uh, probably one of the more famous quotes uh, that he says about this observation of this new project in America. He says, the first thing that strikes the observation is an innumerable multitude of men, all equal and alike, incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. <laughs> Each of them, like a part, is a stranger to the fate of all the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, he is close to them, but he does not see them. He touches them, but he does not feel them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone, and if his kindred still remain to him, he may be said at any rate to have lost his country. I feel like that could be written of like Chicago today. Like, isn't that crazy that something written in 1830, see, the, the, the spirit of America has not changed. He said that um, often, you know, he was like, it's weird. Like, money is the thing that matters in America. It's like you could write a book, and the only ones that sell are the ones that mean anything to anyone, right? So he, 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 he had these, this ability to be in one world, and to be immersed into another world and see things with clear eyes. Um, but I believe this is much like our society today, right? The, the story of pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. But here, there's a deep effect on us that we have this separate self, the illusion of the separate self. What I want to show you today in Ephesians is three things, really simple. Three times in Ephesians, they will say the phrase, to the praise of God's glory. To the pra- this is all done for the praise of God's glory. To the praise of God's glory. I want to talk about how we praise God for his plan for our life. Real simple. How do we praise God for his plan on our life? Tocqueville, you see, he saw that they don't have anything larger than themselves to live for other than themselves. They had what you would call the illusion of the separate self, that we are, that's where most of us live. We think about us as a separate self, rather than what Paul is going to get into in Ephesians 1.10, is that the whole purpose of all of God's work is to sum up all things in Christ, to unify all things in Christ, okay? So he's saying that we, are, we live for union. We were made for union. In other words, we are much more the same than we are unique separate selves, that we are all from dust you came and dust you shall return. That um, one mystic said that death is basically an, an imaginary uh, transition um, in a sense that we are all coming from the same thing and ending in the same thing. If you think about it in a very big cosmic level, 
we are much more the same than we are separate selves. But when, what gets us in trouble, what makes us silly and stupid and sinful and do things is the separate self that usually focuses on the problems of others, that's defending themselves, that's blaming others, that's analyzing this person. It's the separate self that causes heartache in our life. Spiritual maturity is going into a direction of spiritual oneness with God, seeing that we are in union with God. That's what we came here to do, communion, to learn that we are in union with God, that we are in perfect union with God, all right? So I know I'm going crazy deep from the get-go here. Just stay with me. Let me bring you down to another level. Um, My wife likes diamonds, and um, diamonds are beautiful. Now, when, you start, when I was young and immature in my diamond knowledge, you would, I just thought a bigger the diamond, the shinier it is. But that's not true. A brilliant, blingful diamond has to do with the multifaceted cuts of a diamond, the clarity of a diamond, the, 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 so much more than just, you could have a, a shallow diamond that's wide at the top, doesn't mean much. Um, but the, the multifacets of a diamond, the angular surfaces of the stone, Bring out the brilliance of the diamond. Paul is going to show us a flash of light, of multifaceted goodness in this passage. Rich, of so much uh, good truth, light flashing everywhere in this text. Chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed. I'm going to attempt to just go through, and you're probably wondering, what are the facets of those works of God that we should praise God for? That God's saying that Paul's saying, to the praises of God's glory. I want to go through those to kind of unpack these six words that are fancy in some ways in the Bible that we often don't talk about. I want to take the dust off of them a little bit and restore them to our lives and see that they're a reason we should praise God. Now, I want to pause there first and talk about praising God. Um, All throughout the scriptures, God talks about the need for us to praise him. Um, That can feel a little... uh, If you think about it, C.S. Lewis, for example, had a massive problem with this. Why would God make me to focus so much on him? Is he like just desperate for attention, just needing like this? Is he someone just like this person that's just like desperate for for compliments? Um, And so C.S. Lewis had a major problem with this at first, wrestling with this. Um, I I, I have a teenager, so I'm always learning new vocabulary. Um, One of those new phrases or terminologies I've learned recently is, um, don't be a pick-me girl, all right? I, I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently uh, now it's, don't be a, I was like, a pick-me girl. Okay, like, like what's that? And it's like, you know, the, pers- the girls was like, pick-me, pick-me. I was like, oh, okay. And I, I read this passage, like, God, are you a pick-me? Are you a pick-me God? Are you a, a pick-me girl? Like, just needing, what God doesn't, but when God's doing this, when he's asking us to praise him, he's not um, in need of something. He's not hungry like a, like a, with, he's not hungry for praise. Uh, he is asking us to do what he knows will be the most comp- complimentary and completing of our joy. He knows that for the greatest joy for us to have is to worship the greatest good, and he's asking us to praise him. So, so in light of the riches poured out on us, we praise God, not because God needs it, but because he knows it is the essence of our fulfilled joy um, and he says, here's the facets at work. Number one, um, back in the, the, the very beginning, put Ephesians back up. It says this, that um, praise to him uh, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We talked about that last week. You are blessed 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So first of all, you've been chosen. That's the first thing. Um, the, the, the sense that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He knew that we would make a, a, a wreck of things, and yet he also knew that he would choose us. Uh, he knew before you ever were born that you would be here. He knew before your parents even got together that you would be here. He knew before the creation of the world that you would be here, and not just you individually, as I talked about, collectively, his people. In, in Egypt, he would look at Israel and say, you are my chosen child. This is where Paul's getting this rich terminology from. So, for, so number one, you're chosen. I don't want to stick there because i got so many to go through. But number two, God forgave you and redeemed you. He forgave you and redeemed you. It says he lavished his grace upon you. You were like a, a parent, a mother, having a newborn with dry skin, lavishing with, with lotion. He, he, he put grace all over you. Um, the brilliance of not only planned it, he forgave you, he washed us clean, he redeemed us, uh, he has forgiven us. And then after that, um, I'm just going to go through the whole list here and then, and then get into it. Holy, he's made you holy and blameless. He's, he's unified you in all things, all right? I'm going to preach whether you want to or not. It's going to start coming out. I know this is like just diving into a lot of terminology, so you're going to have to hang in there with me. He's given you an inheritance. He's sealed you with the Spirit, and he's done all this for the praise of your glory, of God's glory. So now what more do you need? This is a, Paul is um, writing a doxology. He's He's writing a praise chorus. The problem with these 202 verses, which is the longest run-on sentence in the Bible, is he's, he's, he's writing this to give us a praise chorus. Now, what many people have done is picked apart this and made this a theological argument. Oh, what has chosen me? What has predestined me? Is that better? Paul is not interested in us being correct. Paul is not writing this so that you could have correct theology. Paul is writing this so you can have an experience with God. And we often think about that. God is also having an experience with us because God's a living being. We'll get into more of that later. But here he says, you are chosen. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. And he says that he's unified you in all things. Let me just break that down for a minute because most people believe this verse is the, the, the epitome of Ephesians. That all things are being summed up in heaven and earth under Christ. And that we were made holy. Um, okay, so number, number, number two, one is chosen. Number two, forgiven and redeemed. Number three, the word holy. Holy is not a term that we like to be called these days. Oh, she's one of those holy girls. Oh, he's one of those holy rollers, right? Like, like that's not a compliment in today's society. Paul says we are holy. Let me do that. What the word holy means in the Old Testament, if you had a temple um, and you had a fork, if you had a, a, you know, if I had, if I had this pencil and I wanted to make it holy, I would bless it, add a shanai, da, 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 put some holy water on it. This t- this pencil is now holy in the temple. It is set apart for God's purposes to only be used 
for the temple. If this was a spoon and it was like, bless the spoon for the priest to eat fruity pebbles in the temple, now this fruit spoon for the fruity pebbles is a holy spoon. It is set apart for God's purposes in the temple. The moment this, this pencil or this spoon goes outside the temple, the word for that is profaned. It means it is being used for a purpose other than what it was set apart to do. When uh, Howard Thurman wrote this in the classic Deep River, he made a profound observation about the role of Christian slaves in the nation of, nation's history. He said, by some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave, listen to this, undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. So to profane something sacred is to desecrate it, to treat it with irreverence, or treat it outside of God's intention. The slaveholders profaned Christianity by taking Christianity and using it for a purpose other than what God intended it to be. At that moment, Christianity became def- became profaned. But the slaveholders profane Christianity by racism, which de- degrades the uh, sacredness of human persons. Contrary to that, the slaves bore witness, sometimes with their blood, to the truth of the gospel, that the law of love contradicted the slavery and the racism upon which it was built. Now, that was them. We're here, years later. I have to ask myself, how do I profane this holy temple that God made? How do I use my life outside the intended purposes that God made me to live? Paul says, you were already made holy, that God has a specific ordained plan for how you are to be useful, and he says he's going to fulfill it no matter how many times you've stepped outside of that intention. He's made you holy. That's good news. And then lastly, uh, uh, fourthly, he calls us to this sense of unity of all things, that all things are being summed up in Christ, that all things are sacred. Um, The word union um, is used in many different ways. One of those ways is in the city of Chicago, there's unions, which was meant to protect workers, to give them protection, right? Oftentimes, those unions don't do that. Sometimes capitalism gets a part of the union and isn't even protecting the union. So it's a messy thing today. Another union you can think of in marriage. We all saw the unfoldings of when Prince Harry married Meghan Markle and uh, changed her life forever and created a Netflix documentary on them. And um, Now, whether they like it or not, their children, her children, because of who she married, because of that union, are in line for the throne. That is a union of progression. This union of, of now that they're union, there's a progression, right? Um, another, another way, another union I like to think of with marriage is, um, I remember sometimes when I'm in the car taking my kids to school, the radio will come on and there's always the talk host. And there was a story of a guy that called in that said he was nervous because he was about to propose to his girlfriend um, and his fiance. And I said, well, why are you nervous? You, you think she's going to say no? And he's like, no, that's not it. She's like, do you think, um, you, you think she's not the one? He's like, no, no, I know she's the one. Um, he, he, she's like, well, you don't have it. Is it because you don't have a plan? You don't know how you're going to do it. He's like, no, I know exactly how I'm going to do it. I got the cameras. She's like, well, why are you nervous? He says, I'm nervous because she doesn't know how much money I have. 
And um, he said, she said, well, how much money? This was like K-Love. They're always fundraising. They're like, well, how much money? This is K-Love. Give us some money. And uh, he's like, well, let me just tell it to you this way. My last name is Walgreens. Or no, my, my granddad's last name is Walgreens. And my trust fund kicks in next month. All right, so she had fallen in love with this guy, not knowing the riches that she was going to inherit right? Paul says that we have a union with God. And later he says that we have obtained an inheritance of all of his riches. We didn't come to God because of his riches. We fell in love with God. We found God beautiful, and we got all of his riches as a result. Isn't that good news? We, 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 we didn't go for him because of the riches. Paul says, but because of your union, because of your intimacy with him, because you're in the family of God, you have all of those riches. When you unite your life with Christ, all the poverty in your world that consumed your soul, all the impoverishment that was upon you in your life was lifted out from you, and you are now rich beyond measure. And I'm not talking about financial richness. I'm talking about a impoverished soul that is focused on the separate self that results in defense and blame and antagonism and in in a sense of distress. And now that impoverished soul was filled with something that you cannot buy. You can't go to the grocery store and get peace off of a shelf. You can't go and drop a hope into your Amazon cart. You can't go and get a sense of security of life of where you're headed from your Netflix queue. This is something that you can't get in this world. This is something that Paul is saying that is otherworldly. He's saying back to, 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 if he was to come today, he would be like Alexis of Tocqueville. He's like, they're, they're obsessed with paltry pleasures. <laughs> like, they, they, they love this stuff. <laughs> like, they just, but they all don't know each other. But they're all like, they're just focused on their life, but yet pretend to kind of be connected. They're like these disembodied individuals all pursuing their own thing, their own plan, yet they don't realize that there's this other worldview that they have been all made into a new family, a new humanity, all summed up in Christ, and that they're connected, that they're in union with each other. How do you know you're in disunion or in union? You're in union when you're loving, when you look at someone else and you have compassion, when you're creative, when you're courageous, when you when you you see someone, when you are in that flow, you are in union with the rest of humanity, and you are union with God. When you're focused on the other person as the problem, when you're defending, when you're blaming, when you're in the pity party, you are in the separate self. You are in the separate self. And God is saying, you've, you've got a whole amount of riches that God's bestowed upon you to access. If you were to see God today and you were like, God, can I have something else? He would be like a pauper, open up his jacket. He's like, I already gave it to you all. I already gave you everything I've got. Not that God doesn't continue to give us good things, but he's given us so much to praise him, so much to, to give him the praise that he, he deserves, so much that we should be thankful for. And I don't mean to, to push you. I'm preaching to myself that I look at these good things, and I'm like, man, I don't think about them. I don't remember them. I live in a time where this is just foreign language. This is like a whole nother, a 
whole other worldview to be thinking about all that God has done for me. So you've been chosen, you've been made holy, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted, he says. We didn't even get a touch on that one. And he says you've been made into this beautiful union. And he says you've been given an inheritance. And in, in the inheritance part, um, next slide. He says that, not, I love this, he says that you have been given an inheritance in, um, go one more slide. In verse, sorry, in verse 13, it says, and also you were included in Christ when you heard the message. Verse 14, who is depositing, who is a deposit guarantee, the Holy Spirit, of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Did you see that? What I mean is, we, we have an inheritance, but we are God's inheritance. I want you to think about this. Like, I don't know about when you think about inheritance. I think about, oh, man, I'm going to receive this family lineage wealth. He's saying that we, God is also having an experience with us, and we are his inheritance. We are his possession. God is experiencing you, and he is a living being that's getting a sense of oneness with you. As he's initiated this with you. All right, one more and I'm done. He says he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is this sense of down payment, that you've already gotten the Holy Spirit, but you're going to get more of him. He sealed you. I was talking to Raul this morning, um, and he talked. He shared that he went to Ephesus and Reminded me that there is often in the lib- in, a, in a letter they would seal the letter with with wax, and often they would put that ring to mark who sent the letter. Paul is saying that God has sealed you; He has you; He's He's secured you. Um, it reminds me of um, when you travel; um, you get those little shampoo bottles, and where do you put them? You put them in that Ziploc bag, right? So if they bust. All of your other clothes are sealed, are protected. God has sealed you. When the turbulence of life comes towards you, when, when things are getting crazy and things might burst, he's protected you. He's put a seal around you. He he's, has you secure. And the beautiful thing this is, is there's a guarantee that you're going to turn out, no matter what you have going on in your life right now, you're going to turn out the way he already planned you to turn out. That's good news. That the, the, your concern, am I going to really be who I intend to be? Am I going to, he says, you don't even have to worry about that. You're, there's a guarantee that you're going to turn out the way he intended you to turn out. Um, back in the old times, what was this, 1500s? All kinds of old history today. Um, there was an opera that commissioned an artist by the name of Augustino to carve out the son of David of a large, massive stone that was probably, I don't know, 40 feet tall. Um, it took them 30 years to try to figure out how to make this stone into something to the point that no one could really do anything about it. And they deemed this large, massive marble unusable. It was condemned. It's worthless. We just, it's too expensive. Now we don't even know how to get it out of here. And all of a sudden, a young, eight, uh, I think it was 18-year-old named Michelangelo looked at that stone and said, that's David. I already see it. 
for three years, David chis- I mean, uh, Michelangelo chiseled away things. He got a mallet hammer. He began to take away things that didn't belong. He began to polish it. And all of a sudden, out of the results of that for three years, was a 17-foot beautiful piece that thousands and mil- millions go to today, the statue of the son of David. What was once as just an ugly, massive piece of unused rock he chiseled out every eyebrow, every lip, every stare. And when he got done, people came from all over the world to see what the master crafter was about to build out of this bulky rock. He was able to take something dark without form, right? Something deemed unusable. And if you think about, if you think I'm still talking about the son of David, you lost my turn. I'm talking about you. That God had to sometimes put dynamite on your life to blow off rock. He had to chisel things away. He had to take parts of you that didn't belong to you to make you and who you are today, that he's not finished with you, that sometimes God has to, to chisel away what doesn't belong to loosen the rock off you, to take a hammer to your life and knock off those pieces and so that you would look like Christ, that you would begin to look like the guarantee the guarantee and seal of the Holy Spirit. So is there anyone here who can praise God for those rough moments, who can praise God for the, the rocky times in your life, that at the time looking back you had no clue how anything positive was going to come from that? But we have obtained an inheritance, a security, that you are God's belonging that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance. Life gets hard. Trauma is real. You can lose your mind. You can lose your sanity. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your union. You cannot be separated from Christ. The only thing that can separate you from God is your mind that tells you that you're separate from God. Nothing else can separate you except you in your mind. Even when you think you're separated, you're not separated. Isn't that good news? How do I know that? Romans 8, Paul says, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. What are you, creator or creation? You can't even separate yourself from God. You can only believe in the illusion that you're separated from him. That's pretty amazing stuff. It's pretty amazing that we are in union with him, connected. The question is, is are you going to open up to that union or are you going to focus on the separate self? The the Tocqueville quote, let me read it again. Damon, you can come up as a close. The belief that we are incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which we glut our, glut our lives, each living apart as a stranger to the fate of all the rest. As for the rest of our fellow citizens, they're close to us, but he does not see them. He, does not, he touches them, but he does not feel them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone. Are we going to live that life, or are we going to praise God for his plan for our life? which is to make us united in Christ and united with each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news that's worth praising you for. Paul just dumps on us 
just like a just a fire hydrant of light like a diamond shining it can overwhelm the senses wrote in his journal, we are already one, but we imagine we are not. And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we already are. I hope the gospel frees you this morning to live inside of a life that is larger than you, that cannot be taken from you. A very life of God in you that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be smothered out pray that you would find the God inside of you and receive the radical acceptance that he has towards you. So where were you encouraged or challenged this morning? Maybe some of you have not praised God for his many blessings. It's time to raise up and worship, to shout, to complete the joy of your salvation, to give him praise and honor. that God has not given up on us becoming all that we were intended for. Believe in that promise. He is perfecting and polishing you, making you exactly what he intended. Not by your power, but by his might. Maybe you need to see that God takes the risk every moment of our existence much of us run from him risking experiencing us, but he's continually wanting intimacy, giving us these blessings. And yet we keep running and he's wanting to just open up all of his lavish goodness upon us. So God, may you make uh, us a people in, united with you, united with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.